CP Podcast 81. So following on from last week's brilliant episode on traumatic shoulder dislocations, I'm delighted that we have Marie back to talk about atraumatic shoulder dislocations. This is by far the less understood area of shoulder dislocations and therefore this is a great episode to improve your understanding and management of these injuries. Let's dive in. Welcome back, Marie, and thank you as always for joining us. We've talked in a previous episode about traumatic shoulder dislocations, and today we're talking all about atraumatic shoulder dislocations. So the first question I have for you is, can you talk us through what an atraumatic shoulder dislocation is, perhaps how it actually happens, and the typical story or patient presentation you might see with this? Yeah, absolutely. So typically your atraumatic shoulder dislocator in their first appointment with you will probably have already had a shoulder instability episode. It's unusual for you to kind of see them first off, but it can happen. So normally they'll, you're part of your subjective, you'll find out they've already had a couple of shoulder dislocations. Um, But if they were to come and see you for the first time, they're typically going to be people that are hypermobile. So they'll probably describe themselves as being extra bendy or double jointed and that they reached for something. They did something very mundane, run of the mill, and that's when they felt their shoulder pop out. Um, They relaxed a bit and then it went back in. Very seldom do atraumatic shoulder dislocators need to come to A&E to have it relocated. It tends to pop out and pop back in again within a couple of minutes. Um, So that's the kind of typical picture. Awesome. And you said that they may have already had instability before. Is it the case that it's just happened in the past or is there a trauma that normally has set it off or what do you tend to find? Um, Tend to find there isn't a trauma in the same way that there's a trauma with the traumatic shoulder dislocators. Often it's just that they are extra bendy and then it's just come a point where they did something and it and it slipped out and popped back in again and and they don't think much of it but now it's happening a bit more than it used to so we typically don't see the same structural changes on x-rays or scans with the atraumatic group because there isn't the same level of trauma you might see some some structural changes in terms of like a bit more of a baggy shoulder capsule or a bit of extra laxity around the ligaments, for example, but I wouldn't expect to see a bony banker or bone changes in a in an atraumatic shoulder dislocator. It's generally because they've got that extra give in their tissues, which means that the proprioception at their shoulder is a bit harder for them to gain, which means that their shoulder is a little bit more predisposed to dislocating because they're extra bendy, because they've not got that proprioception and that feedback within their cuff. It can happen. Brilliant. Thank you. That's really helpful. For those of you who are uh, who haven't come across Marie's previous episode, please do listen to that because Marie talks about the Bankart lesions and the hill sacs and the structural changes that she's just mentioned there. But otherwise, Marie, maybe instead I can ask you, well, if it's not due to a trauma and if they don't have these structural changes, how do these patients start dislocating? I know in the past you've talked about born loose and worn loose and things like that. So could you kind of describe some of those patterns and stories so that it can help us make sense of it? Yeah, absolutely. So born loose and worn loose is type two shoulder instability on the Stanmore Triangle. It's your hypermobile people. So you've got that 
whole body extra give in your soft tissues that laxity which at your shoulder joint which ball and socket joint compromises stability to give us mobility is going to be a lot more profound so you're going to end up with that extra give extra flexibility in the ligaments bigger baggier shoulder capsule which contributes to shoulder proprioception alongside other things so that proprioception of your shoulders awareness of where it is in space is going to be poor which means that when you do activities your shoulder is going to be more predisposed to slipping out and then your worn loose are the people that kind of have acquired laxity in the shoulder due to sport or work related things so I always think about kind of baseball pitchers where they have that horrendous external rotation that just looks a bit creepy and then very little internal rotations they will have acquired laxity in their shoulder because they've conditioned it over the years again that will affect the proprioception and could result in them having an instability episode doing something very innocuous day to day yeah you're absolutely right and if if anyone isn't familiar with that please do google baseball pitcher shoulder or something like that and the degree of external rotation on those images is actually quite frightening, really frightening. It's crazy how much external rotation they develop at their shoulder. But a a word you use there, Marie, is condition. They almost condition their shoulder to be able to do that, which is a really good term, actually, I think, because it describes this process that they didn't start with that level of external rotation, but over a period of time, to get more range of movement at the shoulder, they've been practicing pitching, practicing pitching, practicing pitching, pushing their arm in that direction and as you said conditioning their shoulder to be able to externally rotate that far and that comes at a price and that price I suppose is the potential for instability because of the fact that the shoulder isn't designed to go that far. Yeah absolutely and it's the same kind of premise with your hypermobile patients they've got this excessive range of movement because of the changes to their soft tissues and that has an impact on the shoulder proprioception and if you've not got very good proprioception it's much harder to recruit all the right muscles and then because you're having to work really hard to recruit the right muscles you'll fatigue quicker and then the fatigue might be the point where you end up having the dislocation subluxation episode because everything's so tired that the structural bagginess if you like isn't enough oomph to keep the shoulder in and then the the muscles which also contribute to your dynamic stability are really tired so they can't do it so then you end up having the instability episodes that's kind of how you end up in this position with the type 2a traumatics that's awesome and from what you've just highlighted there and the way you've summarized it allows us to therefore make sense of the fact that this is totally different to the traumatic instability patients who have an episode they have a fall they have a a brawl something has happened in a specific moment in time that has caused that instability and potentially that ongoing instability whereas with your atraumatics you're looking more at a period of time long duration year months years of movement in certain ways that may have led to these Ace traumatic changes of their shoulder. So thank you so much. That really makes sense. So from now, let's move on to assessment. So um, perhaps I'll, I'll let you do this. I, I, I normally say, imagine you've got a patient of this age, this demographic, this activity, but perhaps if I may, I'll ask you, can you give us an example of a typical patient, their background, classic age, something like that, and maybe point through the different things that you are trying to assess with them. 
Yeah, absolutely. So typically this patient would be female. It's just a bit more common in women than men in terms of the hypermobility side of things. And they can present any age, but I'd say probably the most common one that I've come across in in clinical practice is kind of late teens to early 30s. That tends to be when they come and seek input because they're starting to have more and more episodes. But there is no age limit on this, if you like. And certainly you can get it in men, um, but it's just more common in clinical practice in female from my experience. Um They'll have a history of being a bit extra bendy. They'll call themselves double jointed. They'll describe some kind of mechanism of rolling over and trying to reach for their phone, which is on charge, shutting a door, reaching for something and their shoulder slipping out of joint and then being able to go back into joint a few moments or a few minutes later. They may describe a history of having multiple shoulder dislocations, or so it's important to kind of explore each episode and what happened around that time, because it is really important for us to know that this wasn't a original traumatic shoulder instability episode that then has continued to be concurrently unstable. So important to make sure that we explore each and every shoulder instability episode as annoying as it can be for patients that have had lots of them because it's going to change your decision making if they tell you well actually this all started five years ago although I'm double jointed I fell down the stairs and dislocated my shoulder and had to come up to A&E and have it relocated that's going to change my decision making because I can't say confidently that there isn't structural changes because we started with the trauma whereas if they never describe any history of trauma and they're just talking about being a bit extra bendy and having these kind of mechanisms of I did this and it popped out but that's not in keeping with the level of trauma that you'd need to dislocate a normal shoulder then you're definitely dealing more with an atraumatic so that's kind of from a subjective perspective, um, kind of how I'd approach things. And then assessment wise, objectively, similar to what you do with a traumatic shoulder dislocation. So having a look, having a feel and then watching how they move. So I still would check over nerves just to make sure that everything was fine. I probably wouldn't do that every session, but if I checked it over and it was fine, I could then kind of park that, that I was happy that they had no neurological deficit. Um, looking at active range, looking at strength. Um, I would probably look at in-range cuff strength, so taking them to kind of abduction, external rotation position and checking what their cuff strength is like in, in both maximal external rotation and internal rotation. Um, if they're hypermobile, having a look at kind of Baton score, just to mm-hmm. give you an idea nice. about how hypermobile we're dealing with here. Um what else can you look at things like general body control so single leg stand single leg squat um corkscrew test which is where you get them to put their arms in the air stand on one leg and do a mini squat and watch how they how much body control they've got having a general look at how well conditioned and how much control have they got of their body because that gives you an overall picture The reason that's important is when you then start to come to rehab, if you've got a really unstable base for the shoulder to work off, it's going to make it a million times harder for the shoulder to work. So I always tell patients it's like trying to do a pistol squat on a gym ball. If your core and legs and the rest of your body is super, super wobbly, your shoulder's going to have to work a million times harder to try and do that pistol squat. Whereas if you're doing a pistol squat on the floor, although that's still hard and I still can't do a pistol squat, 
it's going to be a million times easier for your shoulder to recruit the right muscles to work in the right way. So that's why it's important with the atraumatic group to think a bit more broadly away from the shoulder. That's awesome. Thank you so much. That That's really, really cool and, and really makes sense as well. And uh, love how you're introducing that different dynamic there. So those are some of the things you would assess. I'm now going to ask you, what do you commonly find in your assessment? So you said you looked at your range of movement, you looked at the strength, you looked at the whole body. Do they have, do you tend to find they have full range of movement? Do they tend to have weak power? What What do you actually find when you are assessing these patients? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So what you tend to find is that they regain full range really quickly after their instability episode because their their body is conditioned to do so. So it's very different to a traumatic presentation where it may take them a good six weeks to get full range back. The atraumatics tend to bounce back sometimes within a couple of days I've seen it, but where they're back to full range. So I'd expect them to have full range of movement. Um, typically, they are all right strength-wise in neutral, but not great in range. They fatigue very quickly. Their core control and general body control is a bit naff. So if you get them to do a single leg squat, they'll find it really hard. If you get them to try and do a plank or something like that, it'll be really difficult. Mm. Single leg bridge, really difficult. So they tend to not be particularly good at having that kind of whole body proprioception and control. Nice. Um Things like sulcus test might be positive um, because they've got that extra give. So you might end up with a positive sulcus sign or positive external rotation sulcus sign. And another test you can look at is something called hyperabduction. So you fix the scapula and then passively abduct the shoulder. In non-hypermobile people, you should only get to about 90 degrees, so level with shoulder height. In hypermobile people, you can go a bit further. So it doesn't necessarily change what you do, like the sulcus sign, the hyperabduction sign, doesn't change how I'm going to manage this. From the history, I already know this sounds like a, a traumatic type 2 shoulder um but it just kind of confirms that if you like you know you've got this extra give in the tissues because you're able to passively abduct it further than you should be able to and you're able to give yourself a lovely gap under where the humeral head should be with the sulcus which isn't normal so it just kind of feeds into that already clinical picture that you've got awesome thank you that's really cool and uh that story does make sense to me they do have full range of movement because they they quite bendy anyway and they're hypermobile and they don't have a structural change that's blocking them etc etc what about psychology where are patients mindsets commonly when they've got atraumatic instability that's a good question um they can be a bit fearful i think it's about education and if they've not had any education before or maybe this is first or second episode for them so they've not been able to experience the fact that they do bounce back quite quickly that will be quite scary so we definitely have a role in educating them on why their shoulder is dislocating and helping them come up with strategies to manage it it might not be that you can get rid of it completely but being able to reassure them that they're not coming to any damage from it that they're able to relocate it fine the nerves are all working well we need to need to work on strength and conditioning around the shoulder and the whole body and that should help with things but it's something they're going to have to continue to manage longer term um, I'll often talk to people about strategies on how to relocate their shoulder because sometimes it can be really 
scary so talking to them about going somewhere calm and relaxing and trying to be as relaxed as possible to ease it back in and then giving them their kind of ultimatum of if it's not back in within 30 minutes that's where you would need to come up to a and e it's really unusual but for someone that's not perhaps not um experienced multiple dislocations from an atraumatic perspective or um is particularly anxious it's nice for them to know what to expect and what you're kind of happy with often they'll look to you to not be panicky um, and that's one thing I found really hard when I first started treating this patient group was I was sat in front of someone whose shoulder I could practically pull out of joint um, with sulcus sign who's telling me they've had like 22 dislocations in a year and they're at looking to me for advice and they're really scared and it's being able to kind of go actually no this is fine from a management perspective the mainstay of treatment here is rehab. In some instances, there's a role for surgery, um, but more often than not, we'll try and we, as in the healthcare system, will try and stay away from that. So there is a there is a school of thought that doing something called a capsular shift, an inferior capsular shift, can help with this kind of type two shoulder instability patient group by tightening up the capsule that's a bit baggy. It gives them a bit more proprioception. The flip side of that is that this is a patient group that have got inherent laxity in their tissues. It might help in the short term, but it's likely that that capsule will stretch back out again over time. So again, there's real mixed viewpoints on this. I believe there's some research coming out soon on it, um, capsular shift compared to rehab for this patient group. So it'd be interesting to see that. But the patients are going to look to you for advice and on this and being able to be calm and well-informed and not freaking out in front of them um, is really helpful. I bet it is. And I can imagine that they, if we as the physiotherapist have a demeanor of, oh, uh, oh maybe don't go that far. I just need to check with my senior. Yeah, then they're not going to go that far and they're not going to go that far at home and they're not going to go that far with their exercises. So that totally makes sense. Marie, we've still got loads to cover in this. There's absolutely a webinar in shoulder instability, but for 30 seconds, quickly, how do you manage these patients? So similar to what I've been talking about already, so thinking more broadly than the shoulder, if they've not got good rest of body control, thinking about starting somewhere else to give them that stable based work off, focusing on good control through range and endurance, lots and lots of proprioception stuff. Um, And just before we finish, just so that I'm clear, this is very different to the management of muscle patterning type three shoulders, which I'm sure there'll be a podcast on at some point in time, given that we've done the other two polls. Um, but this is more to do with the type two. So born loose, worn loose, structural atraumatics, um, not the muscle patterning. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Marie. Wonderful to have your thoughts. Wonderful to have your expert knowledge on this subject. See you very soon. Thank you. So there you go. Some really key concepts discussed in this podcast. And I'm sure that Marie will join us soon for a webinar on shoulder dislocations where we can go through the whole thing. But for now, it's so interesting how the whole body seems to have an impact on these dislocations. And so please do remember that when you're working with these patients in practice. Thank you so much for listening. See you soon.